According to the United Nations, school disruptions during COVID-19 pandemic have affected over one and a half billion students around the world. That's billion with a B. There is no precedent for such an event in our history. Education Week reported that in the U.S. alone, the public school system has lost close to 1.5 million students during the pandemic. Some of those students were homeschooled, others went to private schools, but many simply disappeared from the system. What will happen to those students? What does it mean for the future of education in America? How can we recover from this? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Bias, the open-minded perspective podcast. I am your host, Dr. Craig Albert, Associate Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. Today, we are talking to Dr. Ashley Guess, an Assistant Professor of Education at Augusta University. She's the head of the university's STEAM, STEM, STEM, STEAM education program and the director of its master's in education program and a whole bunch of other things. Her CV is super long and super impressive. And that's why we are super honored to have you here, Dr. Guess. So thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you. Let's just get right into this. The topic for today is the impact of COVID-19 in the K-12 through classroom. Yeah. Can you briefly describe some of the issues that COVID-19 has caused in the K-12 through classroom? Perhaps even discuss maybe some new issues that we didn't know were going to be issues because of uh, COVID-19. And then what are some pre-existing issues that COVID-19 has amplified? And I assume there's a lot of those that are being amplified by the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. So do we have like five hours for the podcast? <laughs> because it's truly been from a completely clinical aspect, it's been an amazing thing to watch. Has it, does that mean amazing, awesome? No, absolutely not, but just amazing. Um, you know, when you're educating kids, let's go back to that. What's the point of education? Why do we educate kids? You know, it's interesting to engage people in that conversation because there's a lot of different perspectives about why we do this thing called education. In general, though, we educate kids create citizens, mm. right? To create Preach. citizens <laughs> who can make good decisions, yeah. who can represent us. You know, there's this uh, book I read numerous years ago called The World is Flat. All right. So what do I mean by that? That means you can hop on a plane and go to China now, right? Faster than that, you can get on your laptop or your phone even and talk across the world instantly. And so all of a sudden, education for our citizens is really impacted. Really, are we educating for a global citizenry now? Mm -hmm. This is a big question. Okay, so let's just say we're educating U.S. citizens. What does that mean? What do kids need? Do they need to go back to, here's the facts? Mm. No. In fact, I was really, this what threw me back to school again after I was a science professor teaching anatomy, physiology, microbiology. I was teaching, you know, thinking I'm rocking this thing. I'm talking about the cardiovascular system, the heart. It's awesome. I asked a really basic question, something about the apex of the heart. And do you know 50 students in my classroom? Somebody consulted Siri. Hey, Siri. What do you know about the apex of the heart in the back of the class? During class. During class. That's awesome. I'm I rarely lecture or teach the facts anymore based on that, you because know. Because of that. Right. I mean, I teach them how to use the facts or what how to find facts or find. how to distinguish between fake facts, you yeah. know, fake news and and reality or Absolutely. You know, teach them what to do with the information. So, what COVID did to bring it back to your initial question, it revealed how much of fact teaching we're still doing. 
Uh, yeah. I assume it, so there has to be some need for fact teaching at some age though, right? Maybe, sure. Like, some facts are important, but, but reality is we also teach for skills. Yeah. And so this is what we saw lost a lot in, in, um, educating during COVID. When are those skills taught? The communication, the collaboration, mm. the the deep thinking, the problem solving, the systems thinking. I mean, I could go on and on and on. When are those skills taught? That's super hard when you're doing it at a distance. Let's even bring it down to the very basics. Kids in kindergarten, from the very beginning, preschool and kindergarten, are they really taught a lot of facts? Yeah, ABCs. But they're taught skills. Oh, you see yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So that it sets the groundwork for them moving forward. Um, and so, so what we're seeing and what I'm hearing from teachers is now that kids are back in the classroom, especially younger ones or ninth graders, it's interesting. They don't know how to act in the classroom anymore. COVID has really impacted that social skill set. 100%. So, so you can do some collaborating online, but is it... Is it really that authentic club? Look at us just sitting here in the podcast. We're making eye contact. We're getting each other's social cues. Imagine doing that on a computer with a mask. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you could really do a good podcast with me just seeing this? No. I mean, I, I get it. You know, at the university level, I did not. So I, I stayed online, synchronous online, you know, Zoom or Teams right, right. or whatever, this whole time until now, until right. this semester. And it was hard, but I adjusted to that online a little bit, but mm. it just wasn't the same. I've been doing this, you know, as a TA through a professor, you know, since 2004. Yeah. And I'm still suffering pedagogically in both modes because of this. If I, like, I'm an yeah. expert, for those of you not watching, you know, I'm quoting, you know, I'm an expert on teaching, but I can't, I can't adjust. So how can students okay. adjust to this? Let's think about kindergarten. Kindergarten. Now, let me add more to that. Let's talk about kindergarten. It's age five to seven is where the brain is rapidly developing some major neural pathways. Okay. So now we've taken these kindergartners, first graders, maybe some preschoolers out. All they've known is it's online. <laughs> Where's their pathways going to be? They don't even know that school is school. You like see what I'm saying? In person. Totally. But it's oh been a good gosh. thing in a way, I think, because should a kindergartner or a first grader or a second grader, let's just talk early, should they just be sitting all day? Absolutely not. Right. Maybe, I'm hoping that maybe teachers have re been able to rethink, even the in-person. Or right now the data is out, still out. How are teachers going? Are they going back to just sitting down rote? You know, I don't mm. know. But for me, it really impressed the need to intentionally, as a teacher, intentionally plan to teach skills. Yeah. You know? Right on. Super important. Yeah. How does it, how has it affected the, the teacher? Uh, my wife mm. was, she taught for eight years in a, in a yeah. private school. Yeah. But already, I mean, I noticed, I was like, hey, this is the hardest job in Ever. the world. Because it's, <laughs> it's, you know, six hours in the classroom, pre-planning, post-planning, Weekend you know, planning, individualized weekend instruction, you know, individualized, you know, I got to make this for this student, yes. you know, different lessons plans. It's like a 90 hour a week job. 100%. And then, so fortunately, my, my wife got out of that profession before COVID hit, but 
I'm like, if she was still there, because I was reading everything in the news, yeah. then they had to do some online, some yeah. in person, yeah. the same teacher adding a whole new mode of instruction. Yeah. How, how are teachers? No words, right? How are they people anymore? They, they you know what I mean? Like, Let me tell you, this year, teachers have already reported to me, because I teach 100% of my, my students are teachers now. They were exhausted by mid August. Yeah. You know why? Because there's been no recovery, right? It's just, and let me speak to this. This is kind of a, a, an area of refocused interest for me recently because of COVID. So I'm really looking at how teachers attach to their kids. Attachment is really important for kids to be able to learn. Okay. And teachers are supposed to be what we call in loco parentis in it, we are as a parent when kids are in our classroom and that, and that means virtual classroom that means whatever sometimes the teacher is the only positive attachment a kid has mm. okay what does attachment look like virtually i hear from a lot of my teachers now beginning this semester they've said to me they're identifying their problem of practice as i don't know my kids i don't know them so they can't bond with them. Can't they can't create with them. that classroom identity. Absolutely. And then you want to talk about serving each individual person, a term we use differentiation for that. We differentiate our instruction for the needs of the individual. How can you differentiate effectively if you don't know them? So people need to understand that there's so many nuances to teaching effectively. And COVID has really interrupted that. So how does a teacher get to know on that personal level the student who's in front of them? What are you going to say? I'm going to play a little, little controversial do it, do it. here. So I hear some folks out there that, that say that's not the teacher's job. That's mm. the parent's job. The teacher's job is to teach, and that's that. Right. How, do you, how do we – I mean, it's not because if you – well, I don't want to give my opinion on this, but why don't you go ahead and – Oh, he's given his opinion already. <laughs> I t- I take pride in not giving my opinion because it's worthless. <laughs> no, it's not. Because you're a teacher too. Let me just speak from research. Yeah. I won't give you opinion. I'll tell you what research tells us. Research tells us that cognitive changes, positive con- cognitive changes happen in a safe environment. Mm. And safe doesn't mean, you know, uh, just physical safety. It means mental safety. It means emotional safety. And, and so let's just think about where you're going to be able to really learn something is it going to be in a place where you don't feel heard right how can you separate that from teaching and in fact that devil's advocate question you just gave me throws me back to how i started the whole conversation what's the purpose of education is it facts i would submit to you that i see third graders with their phone in the classroom they know how to get facts that's not what we're teaching Predominantly, That's not who we want to develop as our new citizenry. We need people who can look at lots of facts and synthesize them. Right. Analyze them. Make choices that are moral, ethical, legal. These are the people we're developing. You know, this ties so much into what I do as a, as a political scientist, you yeah. know, and and Jefferson, a lot of people don't know this, but he thought for the Democratic Republic, that's our 
proper constitutional yes. form for the listener out there. You know, it's not just democracy. It's a democratic republic. republic. Mm-hmm. But you had to have a citizenry skilled and taught yes. to be excellence in virtue. The founding framers were, were scientists, yes. were philosophers, yes. and they thought that was necessary for a virtuous citizen, or as Aristotle says, a serious citizen. I love that word. We're serious citizens. We, yes. we take our citizenship Seriously. Seriously. Yes. And and the education system is supposed to instruct you toward that. That's why we instituted public education in the first place in our country. Yeah. Yes, that's the that was the purpose. So I want to go back to this. You know, some students don't have a safe environment at yeah. home. Right. They don't have maybe good families. So so they get this in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Or I, they don't eat. Or they don't eat. Let me say eat. they don't eat oh, unless goodness. they come to school right? School is their safe place. This was something that when COVID first hit, a lot of teachers were really worried about was, okay, the the students aren't with me. I know this is going on in their home. Who's watching them? You know what I mean? Who's helping them? How is that impacting our students as well? They're supposed to be online, but yet who's going to help them? I mean, what if they didn't have Internet. That's very possible. Many of the regions, in fact, that we serve don't have reliable internet still. It's, and they don't have computers. They, a lot of kids are trying to do a lot of their work on their phone. Now try typing a paper on your phone, even, even a paragraph. I mean, so this right? is like a, it's a thing. This is a, I don't know the proper word. Like this is a crisis. This it is, is a, a crisis. societal crisis. Yes. Not just talking about the, the terrible statistics from people getting sick and dying, right. but the, the societal impact could be, I mean, just, just detrimental. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it just like this, because I have this question planned and it just Uh-oh. this is just feeding into it. It says about a third of these students who did not enroll in public schools are mm. kindergartners. A third. I mean, that's just remarkable. If children at that age miss school, uh. what are the potential implications later in life? What about societal implications? Uh-huh. How well, can we address any of this? So, so I mean, is this a lost year? Is this two lost years? You know like, what? And remember what I said to you about the neural pathways. Can those be built back? Yes, they can. The brain is very plastic. What we also see is starting in late middle school, the brain actually is very efficient. So pathways that are not being utilized regularly, the brain prunes them. So if you go out and think about what you do to your bushes, um, you know, you cut them down or you see people cutting branches off to prune them, them cut them back and and make them grow stronger. The body does the same thing to neural pathways in the brain in late middle school, early high school. It starts that process. So let's talk about a kid who is not learning to be creative at all in, in what they're doing. Let's just say the skill of creativity. So they haven't established a lot of that skill in in uh, kindergarten. Maybe they'll start getting it in first or second grade. So right at the edge of when the pathways are even being laid down. Then if it's not utilized consistently, what does the brain do? Prunes, Prunes it. it away. And so what would be the result for our citizenry? You guys can fill in the blanks. You don't need me. You know, it's a pretty logical conclusion. So do, you know, obviously it's too early. We don't have that kind of data yet. But I, you know, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about this. So going on this, there's a big political debate even between whether students should be forced to go in the classroom 
or or should be forced to stay at home because of the mm. you know the disease. Right, right. We know that there is no difference or little difference in learning outcomes for adults who take a well-designed face-to-face or online course. Key, key, well-designed. Well-designed. Do we have any data on whether the same is true for kids? So let's assume it's well-designed, or maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Is all this well-designed? And if it is, is it good? Does it work? What we've seen, I can tell you at the College of Ed, where we are deeply, deeply engaged with teachers and teacher practice, is that most, in fact, I don't have an actual percentage, but I would say the vast, vast majority of teachers have never been trained in instructional design, Mm. let alone instructional design online, which is a whole separate area. Most College of Ed, you know, preparation programs have not deeply engaged their pre-service teachers in that. Okay. Wait, wait. So, so never. Let's hold off on the online part. (laughs) Curriculum instruction and design and implementation isn't a like education 101? No, it's not. And and a lot of times what, what teachers do is they have pre-planned curriculum. And so their job is the pedagogy to teach it, to deliver it well. So there's a whole separate thing about designing instruction and then delivering oh. instruction. They're two separate but very related, interrelated things. I guess that makes sense. I didn't get taught how to teach. No, they just gave me a class one day and they were like, here, here you, you go. go. And I was like, ah, <laughs> okay. right. So the delivery, you were speaking about delivery earlier, but the design of instruction is Even, another key right. piece. Well, what advice do you have for parents trying to educate their kids who are forced into emergency remote teaching? How do we supplement the online instruction that students might be going through right now with the parents? I mean, how can you expect that on the parents? Yeah, so there's a couple things I want to say about this. Number one You can't ask a parent to do it Mm. right away. I mean, let's just be honest. But what can a parent do? So let me speak to the parents. This is going to sound crazy, but you can ask your child questions. You can engage them in questioning. Be intentional. Be meaningful about the questions. When you say a question like, hey, what did you learn in class today? The kid's going to go, nothing. <laughs> right? Or there maybe if you have a kid back into yeah, thousands uh, of memories in my own exactly. head from so, being a kid. <laughs> so rephrase your question. Probe, be interested. But here's the key piece, you know, kids as early as second grade, even first grade know when a parent is disinterested. They know. They're not dumb. They're smart. So be interested. That means you need to yourself become truly interested, right? But then engage them in questions. Ask them why. And then be okay with silence as you let them think about it. I mean, that's a, it's that's a basic a, that's thing. That's a classroom technique, right? It is. Like, it so is. parents should use the same Why thing. Why not? Because it, it allows deep engagement. And that's what we're looking for. That's where the problem that? solving. Yeah. So, so the parent can say, well, um, why do you think that the teacher assigned that particular thing? What do you, why, what is it going to help you do? Uh, End of story. Then, oh, I don't know. They're just giving me busy work. (laughs) I don't know about that. Let's tell me about what you're doing. You see how that can go. So then, then all of a sudden, caution, you're having a great conversation with your, with your kid. And I assume if it's done with love, that can create a better parental bond or and filial bond and attachment right? right there. And then that establishes the parent as the instructional lead. Why shouldn't the parent be the instructional lead? Why not? 
I think it has to be. I mean, I think that's the framing intent was to to have the system work that way. Yes, we should be working in concert together. We haven't always done that. I think it's unfortunate that it took COVID to bring that super like shining to light. I mean, it's it's put the spotlight on it. Right. But why not? Let's embrace it. Let's engage it. Let's do it. You know, I think we can do that as 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 a population. What are some lessons learned with any of this, but especially with you know remote teaching? Mm that can help us better prepare for the next lockdown or the next pandemic or the next, you know, learning disruption. Okay. Here's my soapbox. First of all, I think we need to pay teachers better. Why do I bring that up? Okay. Okay. I'm just saying, because when you're paying somebody at poverty level, okay. To engage your kids in a deep and meaningful way. I don't care if it's online. I don't care if it's Face-to-face, you want somebody who can feed their family Hmm. without having these issues themselves. You also want to promote deep and meaningful collaboration time for teachers. They need this. Stop isolating teachers from each other. They have to have collaboration time, whether they're teaching face-to-face or online, to be able to do these deep and meaningful curricular, make these curricular decisions, to reflect, to impact students' lives positively. These are structural changes that, in my view, need to happen. I always thought, I mean, just watching my wife, and I mean, I I just could not believe how hard she worked. And I was like, teachers need to have like three or four hours max in the classroom per day, which means they need to double the amount of teachers to get all the kids taught. But there's just so, they can't possibly... Do it all. Do it all. You can't. And let me just say something else about that since you got me on my soapbox. (laughs) I think purposeful and ongoing teacher professional development is needed. Two-hour, two-day workshops are great. They're fine. They serve a purpose. But they don't serve a purpose for deep and meaningful learning for the teacher. And so the, the teacher needs these opportunities to be able to develop themselves, engage with professionals, not just academics, but I would suggest community professionals. Mm. And so that leads me to the other piece. This is not just a teacher and parent problem. It is a community problem. So communities can decide how they're going to respond. Is it meaningful for them to train up kids to be there for their own job pipeline. Is it meaningful? What kind of community do you want to engage in, right? And so community experts, community members need to be engaged intentionally and explicitly with parents and with teachers and with kids. Man. I mean, so this is a whole a whole of operation approach that needs to be revised, restructured, just everything. Yeah, but you know what? I'm so glad that you just gave me that segue. I'll pay you later. <laughs> because honestly, my area of expertise is in a STEM educational approach. And I actually am a v- big advocate for a STEAM educational approach. Now, So what's here- the difference for the listener that no right. idea what we're talking about? So let me just say this. A lot of people, when they hear STEM, they're going to say, oh, STEM cells. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about injecting anybody, number one. Other people would say, oh, STEM, so you mean science. No, that's not what I mean. Science is science. A STEM educational approach is a way that the teacher can intentionally plan for students to apply what they're learning in science and math, the S and the M, into the design process 
leveraging that design process and give the students a choice to showcase their knowledge and understanding, notice understanding, mm. to practice their skills through designing with outcomes in engineering, engineering technologies, and to be completely inclusive, arts. And we, we're looking arts as a broad category, liberal arts, as well as performing arts or visual arts. Key piece here is that you're applying the knowledge and practices and skills from your individual disciplines through the design process. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is not only a change that the individual teacher would could take and should take to engage their students, whether online or whether face-to-face, -face, but you can do it structurally from a district level. What happens is to be able to take this approach meaningfully. And I'm talking K-20 here. You can do it really through undergraduate, but definitely through sophomore year undergraduate. In order to do this, one teacher can never be an expert in engineering and science and math and all these right. things. So what is it going to demand? It's going to demand collaboration. collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That If they ad would adopt a design-based, integrative, STEAM educational approach, a lot of this could be grabbed up and changed for the better. It does take a big shift in teaching practice. Yeah. And so this is why, going back to my soapbox moment, um, this is why we need to walk with teachers and give them time, time to do these things. People think, oh, you have all summer off. Uh-uh, I call BS on that. Yes. <laughs> if you need to beep out BS, that's fine. But my heavens, <laughs> my heavens, my heavens. These teachers are trying. Yeah. What are you doing to support them is what I would say. Let's get a, get a little easier in here now. Uh, if you feel comfortable, can you tell us how and why you got into education or what led you to your particular research and teaching interests? It's kind of an interesting story. When I was coming through um, undergraduate school, I did not want to teach. <laughs> I was like, mm-mm. I actually wanted to be in musical theater. And this was back in the early 80s. Now that everybody's going to know how old I am. but um, And, you know, it was interesting because my parents back then were like, oh, you'll never be able to support yourself. You know, you don't want to be in theater. So I chose to major in biology because I like sciences and because I had attached to that teacher. Right. And I knew I was good at it because she told me I was. Hmm. Right. So I majored in biology and then realized that a lab job was going to be pay me less than if I was in theater. <sighs> so I started doing a master's in um, cellular molecular biology um, and realized I just wasn't geared up for the lab. It just wasn't who I was to be kind of alone time with mice. Right. A lot. Yeah. Just wasn't for me. Um, life happened. I got in, I was married and I had two children and Without going into too much detail, my daughter, who was four, was actually run over by a car. Oh. It actually parked on top of her. Yeah. And my son, who was two, was hurt in the same accident. He ended up with a body cast. Um, and I, my husband left. And so I was alone with two children to support and two critically ill children, one very critically ill. The good news is she's now 31 and very much alive. And she is a theater major. <laughs> nice. Love it. In awesome. fact, she's getting her MFA in lighting design, theater design at, at um, 
in at UT Knoxville. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my son is finishing. The older one is finishing. Um, he went graduated from the Citadel. Didn't go into the service. Eight years later, said that was dumb. Went into the service. He's finished basic training this week, Fantastic. which is great. But that created a need for me. Mm. I had to teach so I could be with them and I could support them because I was alone. The crazy thing was the only class I ever failed, ever, ever, I was a straight-A student except for one class, organic chemistry. <laughs> nightmares. I've had nightmares about Okay, it. <laughs> so guess what? I retook it and got an A. Never really liked chemistry. My job, my first job that was necessitated to be with my kids was chemistry. I could feel God laughing at me. Yes. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what made me the best teacher? Because you know why? I knew what it was like to struggle in that. Yes. So the students can sense that. They, they know do. your they authenticity knew, as they well. They knew, and I started teaching through the arts way back then, and have never stopped. So started teaching chemistry in upstate South Carolina and never looked back, found my passion. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I've taught at, at the college level, um, microbiology, anatomy, physiology, and, bi and um, biology. And as I told you in the beginning, realized that technology was changing everything for me. So I went back to school again, went to Virginia Tech, and really decided not to do a PhD in science ed. I wanted to exist between the disciplines, mm. the space between. And so this is why I chose integrative STEM education as my focus area. That's what your that's your that's my actual PhD. Oh wow! All right. Yeah, yeah. So it's not science ed. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I chose to be somebody who could exist between the disciplines. Right, yeah. And my doctoral work is actually in STEAM. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, thanks for giving us that story. I'm, sure. I'm, I thought it was going to be a little light, but it got deep for It got second. deep for a minute. But you know, it's great. Got two more kids. Neither one of them want to be teachers. That's fine with me. <laughs> 18-year-old Craig don't. Albert didn't want to be a teacher exactly. either. I wanted to be a special forces CIA <laughs> operative, you, you know. Yes. But here I am in the classroom. Rocking it. And, and I love it. I love yeah. it. I love it. Because I have that, you know, that that past as well, you know. Yeah. Stuff comes up and it helps you relate to students. There you go. And it helps you see, not students, but humanness in each of your students. hundred percent. Because you've been there. You've, you've been yes. there. Yes. And you walk with them. Walk with them. But this is what is hard online. Yeah. How can you walk with somebody the same way? Can it be done? Yeah. But you know what, what it looks like for me in my practice? As I was walking up here to do this podcast, I was on my phone, virtual chatting with a student in her mask, in her classroom, crying because oh. whatever. That's what it looks like. Yeah. I tell my students, done. I got a 24-7 policy. Like, reach out. I might not always answer immediately, but reach out because we're in it together. We're in it together. Yes. Have and, to be. and then we have to we have to support our teachers in that. So good teachers will attach, will engage. They will feel the trauma. They will they will love your students, your kids. But they take that home and it's hard. Yeah. You know, yeah. so supporting them, reach out, do something for a teacher today. Last question. What yeah. advice can you give to any listeners that may be interested in pursuing an education in, well, education? Yes. <laughs> Let's plug you what you do, where, you know, do you have any, what advice? Yeah. Well, first of all, my word of advice would be 
If you can, reach out to a college of ed. Try not to go the alternate route. Now, I understand the alternate route for teaching. Every state has it, and you can get in the classroom right away, and you can start teaching, and then you can kind of learn the learn the curriculum design or whatever it is, the pedagogy on the side. Is that where you just take the little community classes on how to be yeah. a teacher, get your license yeah, that yeah, way? Yep, okay. yep, that's the alternate route. I would really advocate for you to try, like your wife did, go to the MAT route. Try to get the intentional degree because it really makes a big difference. And when you're trying to learn this thing and swim in the classroom at the same time, it's hard. It's real hard. What does your college offer as far as that? Yeah, we have MATs for elementary ed, for secondary ed, for middle school. We also have a master's of education in instruction. And this would be for teachers who already are certified and want to come back and really deeply learn what this thing is that we call teaching. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the program coordinator for that. The great thing about that degree um, is that's when you go up in the pay scale is when you get your master's degree. Uh. And part of our master's degree is we give you an extra credential. You'll get a teaching endorsement alongside. And that means a specialty area. We have endorsements in uh, reading. We have endorsements in gifted teaching, STEM and STEAM education. Um, we have one in computer science that I also teach. Um, we have ESOL, English as a Second Language endorsement. Um, we also have one in PBIS, which is a, a way to, you know, a structure to help your schools um, with positive behavior. Uh-huh. So these are all options. You can also then come back and get your specialist degree, which we offer. Most people finish their master's and specialist degree in less than two years. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah, it's awesome. They are all online for convenience for teachers because after a long day driving down to campus, it's rough. Um, Does this mean that they're all asynchronous? No. In fact, I have lots of synchronous opportunities in my why for reasons we've just discussed. Right. So I'll put links to all this in the show notes. That'd be so awesome. if anybody's out there, they can click on them and see what you all offer in the College of Education. Sure. This has been great. We have to wrap it up. I could keep talking. Like we could have made seven or eight episodes. I know. Let's this. do like, it. Eventually. This is awesome. Uh, thanks so much for being here. We're honored to have you. Yeah. Uh, make sure listeners, viewers, follow us on social media, like us, subscribe, share, comment, email. We are at Beyond Bias Podcast on the gram. That's Beyond underscore bias underscore podcast on Instagram. Our YouTube channel is Beyond Bias Podcast channel. Feel free to email us at beyondbiaspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow me, your host, Dr. Craig Albert, on all the typical platforms at Dr. Craig D. Albert. That's Dr. D.R., not the full one. Dr. Guest, is there a way for listeners to follow or keep up with you and what you're doing? Absolutely. You can find me on all social media as at iSteamProf, and that'll connect you to many initiatives and hopefully that you'll link Steamify, which is a competition, and Room 366 podcast. Awesome. I'll put, if you give me links to all those, I'll put them all in the show notes uh, when this goes live. That's great. Thanks. And as always, we will end with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the eminent social and political philosopher. He writes, quote, All those who have the ambition to excel in letters in democratic nations ought to be nourished often from the works of antiquity. It is a solitary diet, end quote. And as always, be nice to someone today and know that you are loved.